from their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james such a great pleasure always this is like a mentor to mine we're about to talk to he's been on the podcast before Stephen pressfield he's written great novels you might have read the novel, The Legend of Bagger Vance, or seen the movie, many other great novels. He's also written so many great books about the process of being a great writer, a great artist. Most notably is The War of Art, but also a book called Turning Pro, The Authentic Swing, Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit. I recommend people read all of his books. And finally, the book I've long been waiting for, which is a book about his own personal story and struggle to becoming a great writer and artist. The book's called Government Cheese. And we just have a conversation about everything it takes to break out of the box and do something and master something you love. And he's a very wise person. So happy to talk to Stephen Pressfield. Here he is. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. This is your book. 
I've read it and reread it. I, I first read it when you sent it to me, and then I reread it again in the past few days preparing for this podcast. And I just really love the book. And it it strikes me this is the best combination of your writing and also your writing about writing. Ah, well, thank you very much. That's great. Like yesterday, we finally got the actual books. You know, they finally we had to drive out to the truck terminal. You know, get them off a pallet. So we will send you your version very soon. And I appreciate you reading it. You know, with loose pages. Sorry yeah, about that. No, I, I, I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. And first off, you wrote the knowledge, which was a novelized version of, you know, an aspiring writer, and and it was very autobiographical. What made you decide to take the next step in writing a real memoir of your writing career? Uh, this is sort of this is my life partner Diana's idea. You know, she sort of pushed me into doing this because she's like heard all my stories and she said, you know, you got to tell these things. It's very people would love it. And I go, you know, forget it. You know, who wants to hear, you know, anybody's, you know, their life story, you know, but she kind of pushed me on to do it. And finally, I just said, OK, I'll do it. There was a lot of self-doubt, as you can imagine, writing something like this that's so close to the bone, so self disclosing. But finally, about halfway through, I decided, okay, maybe this has a chance of being good. Let me keep going. Well, along those lines, like, you know, you mentioned your marriage to Leslie, which was early on in your career and life. And you're very personal in describing like why that marriage failed. Like, did you talk to Leslie beforehand? Like, I don't know if you're even still in touch with her, but do you say, hey, there's some revelations in here that might surprise you or, or she knows everything? I, I, she does know everything, but I sent it to her after it was done just to make sure that she wasn't offended by anything. But I, I don't think I even told her before I started. But we're good friends now, so everything was okay, okay with her. She actually corrected a few factual things. She said, you know, that really didn't happen like you say it did, that kind of thing. But she was okay with it. You know, that's interesting that she had to correct things. Like, do you think fiction embellishes or fills in memory in interesting ways? So, so like, you know, the act of writing you never are, you never writing something down, even if it's as true as possible, is never completely true because memory plays tricks on you. True. In fact, it's it's quite wide of the truth a lot of the time, you know. But uh, like I, when I was interviewing people for my book, The Lion's Gate, about the Six Day War, and I was interviewing Israeli fighter pilots and, you know, da 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 da. And I found that three guys from the same unit would tell you the same story. And it was completely different in each one of their tellings, you know, and they just remembered it differently. You know, it's just there's something about memory. It's a weird thing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, one thing we know about you and and you've written a lot about writing in The War of Art and 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 uh, many other books about writing like that's It's been kind of like half your career has been writing or, you know, as a reader of yours, half the books I've read have been novels and half have been books about writing. And and both have been equally good, but it's like two different genres that you've mastered. And then, of course, in this book, we read all about your your screenwriting adventures as well, which kind of led into the novel writing as you described so well. But you really bled in the course of becoming a writer. Like this was a brutal 40 years for you, <laughs> becoming where you are now. Well, you know, it's it's a longer odyssey than for some people than others, and it certainly was a long one for me. It was like, I think, 27 years from when I first quit a job to try to write until I actually had my first novel published. 
So it was a long odyssey. But you know about that, James. You've certainly, you bled, you know, and uh, sometimes it takes a while. Yeah, I, I started writing every day in 1990. And then in 2002, I had my first published article where I got money. And then a few years after that, my first published book, but it was a backdoor way. It wasn't a novel. It was a book about finance. And then later I was able to write about my own personal journeys and so on. I think it's a little easier now. We'll get to that. I mean, by the way, you know, James Patterson just had an autobiography come out. And I don't know if you know this, but he spent a good chunk of his career in advertising, just like, yeah. you, you know, you spent uh, much time in advertising. And what do you think is the role of advertising and kind of like training you about writing? Ah, that's a great question, because I do think it, it does train you. For one thing, it makes you very aware that nobody wants to read your shit, you know? Yeah, that, title one of your books. That you have to present it in such a way, whatever it is, you know, an ad for Preparation H or your own novel, that it's so compelling that people can't look away from it. Because like, as you know, James, you know, I couldn't get my own mother to read my stuff. I mean, nobody wants to read it. Advertising really focuses the mind that way. Another thing that it really does is it teaches you how to cut stuff, how to edit. A 30-second commercial is like 60 words at the most. And yeah. really, it should be 40 words or something. And it's not easy to tell a little story in 40 words. I guess people do it now on Twitter or something. But to learn to cut is a really important thing. It seems like... I mean, that applies to so many different areas of writing and performance and storytelling. Like when you were writing, and I'm just kind of skipping around, but when you were writing, when you got into the, the movie business, and we'll discuss how you got into that in a second, you know, there was one point when you, your hero asks a question and somebody said to you, take that out. And you're like, why? And the guy says, uh, the hero never asks questions. <laughs> that stands out for me because I was curious, why does the hero never ask questions? I never thought of it that way. And that's a kind of editing too. <laughs> I, that was, you know, that to me is kind of the way you learn things in this kind of the real world and the school of hard knocks. You know, I was working with a director, a guy named Ernie Pintoff, who was a great friend eventually. And we used to work side by side at a table. And he had done a lot of episodic TV. And one of the things that he had done was Hawaii Five O. I don't know if you I remember am. that with Jack Lord. Yeah. Jack Lord was the star. We're writing a script together, Ernie and me, and I had a question in it. And he said, no, no, no. Jack Lord never asked questions. And I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You got to ask questions, you know. But he said, the hero should never be unsure in any moment. Or to change that slightly, the hero of any story has to be so driven, whether it's Rocky or Luke Skywalker or anybody like that, that they never are hesitant in the sense of, where do I go? You know, asking that kind of a question. Like if you're a detective, if your hero is a detective, a detective has to ask questions because he has to interrogate witnesses, right? But yeah. they can never be weak questions. They have to be forceful, driving the story forward. So I, that was a great lesson to me where I, when I first heard that, I thought that's the dumbest thing I ever heard, but it's really true. You know, and it makes sense too, because at first when I was hearing you say this, I was thinking in my head, the devil's advocate, which is that at the beginning of the hero's journey, they're reluctant to go on the journey, but it's not that they're asking questions. Why should I go on this? They're actually firm that they don't want to go on this journey. Like in a romance, the man and woman meet each other. It's not like they're unsure. Should I ask her out or not? 
They hate each other. Uh, right. They're sure of it. Yeah, which is a great storytelling principle because the story always has to start from as far away from the finish as possible, right? Emotionally, psychologically, the whole thing. So the lovers that we know are going to get together in the end, they don't want to get together at the start, you know? Or Luke Skywalker, who winds up as a Jedi Knight, the last thing he wants to do at the start is to get involved with this stuff. That's the way it should be. Right, like even when Obi-Wan Kenobi says, you need to go and, you know, save the galaxy or whatever, it's not like he asks, can I do that? It's it's more like he says, I can't do that. I I got to work on Uncle Ben's farm. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's so because that was the example, the counter example I was going to use. But then I realized, no, he was actually pretty firm about being a whiny little farmer uh, at first. Yeah, right. It's not until Uncle Owen and Aunt Baru get murdered by the Sand People yeah. that he he has to go. Yeah, but that's part of the hero's journey, as as you know from Joseph Campbell. You know. The refusal of the call, right? The call yeah. to adventure comes in and the hero, the first thing the hero always does is refuse it. Well, and you know, actually, I've only read Joseph Campbell through you. So I read <laughs> this in your books about the arc of the hero. But it also makes me think of the legend of Bagger Vance. Like, you know, at first, the Matt Damon character, and my memory's so bad, I always forget names but Randolph Juna I would I would forget it too if I hadn't read it myself oh Randolph Juna right because Arjuna from the Bhavagai Gita and he's yeah based on that so he at first really refuses to play it's not like he's like hmm, am I good enough to play he's just an alcoholic who's miserable who refuses to play yeah which is well that's the hero's journey it happens I mean I'm sure if, if you and I went through our lives right we would have those moments where there is a call to do something, right? To move to another city, to start a new venture, to start a book or something like that. And invariably, at least with me, I, I'll let you answer for yourself. You know, I always say no at first, you know, it's like, oh, I can't do that. It's too, you know, it's not really me. It's too hard, blah, blah, blah. And I usually have to be talked into it by somebody. And I think that's almost a universal, you know, because the call is scary, whatever it is to, to, to change your life. It's scary. And the one thing, though, where you didn't question was getting into a writing career. And I, I think your journey into writing probably mimics many others, which is that, you know, you're working some job. And in this case, I believe it was advertising, right? And, yeah, and uh -huh. a guy in your office, Ed. Ed Hannibal. Yeah, he wrote a book which with a great title, uh, Chocolate Days, Popsicle Weeks, something yeah, like that. Yeah, great. Great memory on your part. Yeah. Yeah, great. Great title. And you're like, I could do that. And 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 he quit his job. And I think it's that taste of freedom and, and romance that that people want from birth that brings people into a writing career. But then after that, every step of the way, it, it could be like for instance, when you when you had the opportunity to go to Hollywood, were you afraid this was gonna draw you away from your your true passion, which was writing a novel? No, I mean at that point. I had written like three novels and none of them were published. None of them went anywhere. Each one took like two or three years. It was a real all is lost moment for me when the third one kind of failed and couldn't find a buyer. And I just thought, I haven't got it in me to do another three years to wind up in this same place. So then I just had it flashed to me. Why don't I go to Hollywood? You know, I've failed as a novelist. Let me go out there and fail as a screenwriter. And that actually energized me because I thought, you know, okay, it's a whole new adventure. Let's give it a shot. And so you were writing, you go out to Hollywood, you're writing screenplay after screenplay. 
nothing's getting accepted. What was kind of the tipping point which had your agent introduce you to the so-called Stanley Duplass, who we don't know what his real name is, but he's a successful producer slash writer. He produced many successful movies and now you're partners with him. What was the tipping point that kind of gave him, your agent, the industry confidence that you could partner with this guy? I'm not sure what was going on. My agent's name was Mike Warner. He's a great guy who died way too soon, tragically young, but he believed in me. And I'd written like probably nine screenplays in each one taking about six months and he couldn't sell any of them. So I guess he could see that I was floundering. I really didn't know what a story was. I had some sort of talent, but I couldn't put it together. And meanwhile, Stanley was successful, but he was not he was a producer writer and not really a writer writer in the sense that you couldn't say to him, Stanley, here's a laptop, write a screenplay. You know, he was much better at uh, working with a partner that would do the writing and then he would guide them, you know, or together you would evolve a story. So it was kind of a, a good fit. I was desperate. I was willing to do anything and was very happy to be working with an established writer that I could learn from. And also that, would get us work. You know, Stanley got us work. He was a brand. And like, even though your prior nine screenplays were not made into movies, were you, were, was anybody optioning them? Was there any moving forward at all in, in the career? There was only, there was only one thing. I don't know if you remember Joe Rubin, who did, uh, was a director of Sleeping with the Enemy and another movie with Dennis Quaid called Dreamscape kind of a young, hot director, he optioned one of them for 3,500 bucks. That was like the only glimmer of success in that, in that whole thing. So what really kept you going? Like, so three unpublished novels, which took three years, two to three years each, nine failed screenplays, which you say take, you know, so that's another four and a half years. That's that. And I understand the perseverance, but what kept you going? I mean, there was no plan B, James. Throughout that period, I worked a bunch of jobs, all kinds of jobs, blue collar jobs, migrant labor jobs, and then white collar jobs, advertising, copywriting, stuff like that. And at the end of the day, I would be so depressed that I sort of had to go home and get out the typewriter and just try to write something. And that was like the only thing that would keep me sane. So there sort of was no real choice for me. I couldn't stop. Were you depressed or, or was there, were you optimistic? Did you have faith that this, this is the sort of process that works and eventually this process will pay off? I, I don't know. I, I don't think I really did have faith. I just didn't have any other choice. It was the only thing that kept me sane. So I kept hoping, I would hope nine screenplays, maybe number 10 is going to sell. You know, you, that's how you think, right? But I wasn't getting very much feedback. But like, like I said, my great agent, Mike Warner, he had faith in me. So that made me feel like I must be doing something right. I mean, that might've been the lifeline for you. Like, let me ask you a, a personal question. Like, did you ever consider, okay, if this next X, Y, Z doesn't work out, I'm going to kill myself. I, 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 I did. In fact, that the moment when I made the decision to go to Hollywood, that was after the third novel failed. And I really, there was like a, a rough three or four days in there where I really was wondering, you know, am I going to splatter my brains all over the wall of this apartment and uh, somebody's going to have to clean it up. So deciding to go to Hollywood sort of saved me. It was a great relief. Oh, great. I don't have to kill myself at least for another few years. Yeah. 
And then, you know, if you ever look back at those earlier, the first three novels that didn't get published and think, okay, A, did you go back and look at them and would you say they completely sucked and have no merit? Or would you ever kind of edit them a little bit and publish them? Uh, that's a great question. It's like maybe every five years I think about that. But when I read them again, they're just not they're just not good enough. It's not like they suck completely because I actually had a good agent based on those. But they just were not at the level that you could publish them. Even now, there's just no, they're just not at that level. What would you say is the weakest part? I think that it's, it's a great question. And I haven't, I, I think it's a deep question too. I think that what was wrong with them was my ego as a writer was too uh, yeah. prominent in them in the sense of my need to be validated. I hadn't kind of got out of my own way. It was so obvious that whoever wrote these things was kind of desperate to succeed rather than just telling a real story straight to the reader. You know, that's such an interesting point because sometimes people give me books to read and I feel the exact same way about these books I read. And, and also when I look back at my earlier stuff, there's a lot of ego in them. You can't really give that criticism like there's too much ego in this. So it's a hard way to couch it. But I think that is, I think someone can't become a writer until they remove as much ego as possible from their writing. So what, sometimes the main character, which is clearly based on them, is like a genius character and, and is the coolest person in the book and can do no <laughs> wrong. So there's that kind of ego. Sometimes there's ego in, in the language. Um, sometimes there's ego in the judgments in the book. And I think, you know, people talk about writing as if, oh, well, can you write a good phrase? Can you write a good paragraph? And that's important. And then there's the storytelling aspect. But the ego aspect is the gate. I think you're exactly right. I mean, if somebody was to ask me, what was the sort of breakthrough for me that allowed me to finally write something that was publishable? It was somehow switching gears from that ego-based person into sort of becoming invisible in a way and just sort of surrendering to the story or to what was going on in, in this tale you're trying to tell and delivering it to the reader, you know, almost like serving a meal in a restaurant. If you're a chef, right? There's one way you can serve a meal where it's like, look at me, look at this great shit that I put together on your plate, you know? And then there's the other way of serving it where it's just entirely a gift to the person. This is everything I've learned. You're going to love this. And then you, the creator of it, become anonymous and sort of step aside and just let the work itself speak for itself. I know that's not really articulate, but the... No, but that's a good way to put it, like, that, that fashioning it as a gift, as opposed to, this is about me. Read this and then look up to me, because I wrote this. Yeah. It's a process of maturing, I think, James. When you say your own self, you know, that, yeah. that when I say ego, it's like the ego of a young person, of a kind of insecure person that's uh, kind of aggressive or trying to draw attention to themselves, et cetera, as opposed to a, a slightly more mature person that can just do the work, make a great chair, you know, make a great shoe, make a great violin, and then give it to the recipient and say, what do you think about this? It makes me wonder, like, for kind of the, you know, everybody loves a prodigy. So every now and then you see someone who's like 21 years old and writes a best-selling novel. But let's look back at, like, the famous 
kind of brat pack of writers in the 80s, like Brad Easton Ellis, uh, Jay McInerney, Tama Janowitz. It, it feels like they didn't have that much ego in their books. I mean, it varies per writer, but it seems like they did a pretty good job doing that. I mean, think about Bob Dylan. Some people just find their calling at a young age, you know, God bless them, you know, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young. How do they do it at that super young age? I guess maybe they're just evolved souls that somehow, you know, are lucky and they just found their calling at a really early age. And for some of us, like you and me, it takes a longer time. Yeah, really long time. Uh, but, you know, I think some get a little bit lucky, too, in that they have some ego on the page but the story itself helps them remove it. Like, so take your agent, Sterling Lord, who, who worked with your first book, Legend of Bagger Vance. He did Jack Kerouac's On the Road. And On the Road has some ego in it, but somehow the nature of it, because he's kind of down and out and hitchhiking around and lost himself a little, and he looks up so much to Neil Cassidy, that helps the book remove ego. Yeah, that's, that, that's a great point. I, you know, the book is full of ego, but yet it doesn't, you're right, it's somehow enlisted in the service of the story. So you don't feel at all when you're reading On the Road. And I hope some of our listeners here actually know what On the Road is. Or if they don't, they please read it by Jack Kerouac, you know, a life-changing book. It was written with so much passion, and he cared so much about the people in it and the whole sort of dream, that bebop, hipster, beatnik dream. He was so in love with it. You know, you forgave whatever ego was in there. But it's interesting, though, like people who try to mimic on the road or mimic another great example is Hunter S. Thompson. If you try to mimic Hunter S. Thompson, I often see people mimic poorly because there's too much ego. Whereas Hunter S. Thompson was a great, great writer first and then has all his, you know, drug induced wild adventures after. And other people kind of like, you know, it's too much about them. Whereas Hunter S. Thompson knew how to remove the ego from those situations. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, of course, is that as you learn in any craft, right, you copy other people, right? You try on, I mean, Bob Dylan, you know, how many people did he copy? Yeah. From Woody Guthrie, you know, on down. So to copy Hunter S. Thompson is not a bad thing necessarily. You know, it's just, it's sort of a stage. I'm sure that if we had somebody that you had read that did that now and we were talking to him they could probably be quite articulate about what they learned doing that why they set it aside and why it was sort of a stage on their journey i hope i hope yeah i mean i think what it helped me the most not not only you know life experience and maturing but just the kind of writers i started to gravitate to were really great at having almost negative ego like raymond carver for instance or some, but not all of Charles Bukowski is like almost the reverse of ego. And then I just sort of learned from that style, like, oh, okay, this is really working for me. Uh-huh. You know, by the way, you're, uh, this, a lot of this book reminded me in stylistically of Fitzgerald's first novel. I think it's called This Side of Paradise, where throughout the novel, which is a very autobiographical novel of his journey to become a writer, he talks about the books he's reading. And in your book, you talk about at different stages, here's what you were reading and here's who told you to read what. And everybody, even Stanley Duplass, who seems so much like more <laughs> of a producer than a writer, he's getting you to read the right things, watch the right movies and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, 
That's a, you know, I've never read this side of paradise, but anybody that compares to the, you know, Scott Fitzgerald is great. But um, definitely, I mean, in any field, right, you have to know the canon. And that's one of the things that Stanley taught me and another mentor in the book, Paul Rink, that would absolutely literally give me lists of things. You must read this. And Stanley was about movies. You must see, you know, Battleship Potemkin, you know, you have to see Gun Crazy or High Sierra or whatever, any of those things. You must know those things. And he's absolutely right. And I find today, you probably find this too, when you're talking with younger people that are aspiring to be movie people or writers or something, and you and you bring up something like uh, Alien or uh, Blade Runner, and they go, what? You know, and you go, how can you even dream of writing a movie if you don't? You should know those movies scene by scene and shot by shot. And then sometimes you see Martin Scorsese when he, on some of these documentaries where, or um, I'm blanking on the guys from Pulp Fiction. Quentin Tarantino. Their knowledge is just encyclopedic. And he worked at a video store, right? So yeah, he right. was watching movies every day, all every day. Every day, all day long, yeah. But you need that, you know? And I'm very grateful to the mentors that I had that made me read stuff and made me watch stuff. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. 
Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I think the mentorship aspect also is very important. Like, I feel like when you were writing your first novels and your, and your first attempts at writing, you didn't really lean into having a mentor very much. That's true. You know, actually, I never thought about that until you said it right now. And nothing really started working for me until I did just sort of stumble onto mentors. In fact, the book, Government Cheese, is divided into seven books, and each one is named after a person, and each one was a mentor to me. Yeah. Not necessarily a writing mentor, but another. And But you're right. That's sort of how you learn things, I think. Yeah. I think the benefit of today's day and age is that people can listen to podcasts, can listen to you talk about these things. And I think also there's a lot more meta type of work done. Like you've written not only your novels, but many people know you from your meta works of writing, which is like the war of art and nobody wants to read your shit and, and, and things like that. The authentic swing was authentic swing is actually one of my favorites. Maybe it's actually one of your lesser known ones, but I love that book because it's all about the process of stealing and how <laughs> important that is. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's true. I, I'm glad you like that, James. It's one of my favorites too. Okay. So let's say there's a layer. So ego is obviously desire is the first layer. You've got a desire to sit down every day and do something unnatural, which is type keys for hours, which is an unnatural physical thing. But then there's this sense that you've you've got to remove the ego from the text. Then there's what is a story. And and like you put earlier, story is a lot about editing, like editing out you say in this book something that kurt vonnegut has also said which is like everything the hero does has to move the story forward in some way and like you say they can't be unsure because then that's not moving the story in a certain way mm. and then there's the actual craft of putting down words and i'll give an example of that from your book i noticed chapter by chapter you would sort of decide between past tense and present tense and i think varying it up is subconsciously for the reader, you know, if they're not, if they're not specifically looking for that, but it's still very exciting because past tense gives a certain type of emotion and present tense gives a certain type of almost anxiety. And then you even play around with second person in one chapter. I noticed it in the art is artifice chapter very briefly. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I must say that that in this book was all instinct. I just did just went by feel on that kind of thing. But to follow, like what you're, let me follow a little bit on what you're saying here, James. Like there's the art, I'm going to talk about writing, but it really applies to everything else, I think. First, there's the desire of right. the, and, the, and some sort of talent. Then there's learning the craft of it, right? What's a story, you know? What's an inciting incident? What's an all is lost moment? What's a crisis, climax, all those things that you you could learn in school. Then there's the kind of what I would call the soft skills, although they're really hard skills, like how do you start something? 
right? So many people have dreams, but they can't even get started. You know, and that was, that was me too. I can relate to that completely. And then how do you finish something, right? How do you get to the end and not, and have the balls to, you know, put a bullet in the head of, of the, you know, your own resistance, you know, how do you deal with rejection? You know, how do you deal with criticism? All these skills that nobody teaches you at all. But then above and beyond that, there's a whole mystical side of it, right? Where do, you know, as you know, I believe in the muse. I believe in the goddess. I believe that stories come from another place. And they don't teach you that in school either. And that's really about, that's we're talking about getting rid of the ego. I think the reason you get rid of the ego is because the goddess hates that fucking ego, you know, mm -hmm. and will not give you anything until you serve her and not your own ambition. So how do you learn that skill? You know, that sort of took me, I would say, 30 years before I could kind of let go and surrender and just let it come, you know, let the work come. So that's how you learn to be a writer. And I'm sure it's true in every other creative field or any other field. It's like there are so many of these layers of skills that you have to have that they don't teach you in school. And in fact, I think the way you really learn them, James, is through mentors. You learn them from like somebody that's your boss or that you're working with or that, you know, where you completely fuck up or you're getting way, way over your head and a mentor steps in and fixes it. And you say to them, you know, with tears running down your face, how did you do that, man? Tell me, teach me. And I think that's what the evolution of an artist is, I think, acquiring those skills that they don't teach you in school. I think you're right, too, that those skills include almost side effect skills like dealing with rejection. Like dealing with rejection is not a writing skill, but it's something that a skill that writers must have. Right. And everybody must have, right? Entrepreneurs yeah. must have any kind of, that anybody does anything, you know, starting a restaurant, you know, dealing with your children, you know? You know, and, and the mentorship aspect, again, it's not as if you need Ernest Hemingway to be your mentor. Stanley Duplass might not have been a better writer than you, but he was able to teach you about writing. And by the way, there's one other thing you just said in there which has been sort of subtext to this, which is they don't tell you what to do. They tell you what not to do is more valuable. Yeah. Like, let's say you give your mom your book and your mom says, oh, Stephen, it's wonderful. You actually just got zero information about your yeah. book from your mom. Yeah. 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 But if someone says, I didn't read it because, then that act, whatever happens after the because, that is valuable information. It is. It's life-changing information. You know, like when... When something completely fails and somebody just tells you, you know, some horrible thing and you have to go home and just beat your brains out of like, what did I do wrong? How did I miss that? You know, how did I not see what I was, you know, and then how do I change it? What, what makes it, what can I do to make it work? Those are those moments when you really dig deep and you actually do change. I get the sense, particularly when you were in Hollywood, you had a feeling this is going to be great. This is going to be great. And then it doesn't happen. And maybe you learn why, maybe you don't, and you go on to the next thing. But I get the sense there was a different quality with Legend of Bagger Vance, which by the way, I highly recommend if you haven't seen the movie, read the book, then see the movie. <laughs> but I got the sense that when you had the idea of the Legend of Bagger Vance, which is, was a very unusual type of story, I could say it's a golf novel, but that's not what it is at all. But 
I had the sense that you felt something else, that you felt for sure this was going to work. Like, what was that different quality and feeling between that and, let's say, Cryptic, which was a screenplay you, you loved writing? That's a very astute observation, James. And, and uh, I do think that, and I've, I've tried to put my finger on this and without success, but certainly The Legend of Bagger Vance was the first time that the muse was really with me, that I was finally doing something that, that was from my own heart. Even though the book itself surprised me, and all the way through writing it, I thought, this is the dumbest idea I've ever had. Who possibly is going to be interested in a mystical novel about golf? It's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. So I had no confidence in it at all as I was doing it. But I was absolutely seized by it in terms of I have to do this, you know, and I have to do it exactly this way. So you're right. The last few screenplays that I wrote before The Legend of Bagger Vance were good. They never got made. They're just sitting in a drawer somewhere. But they were really good, but they were not. It was a qualitative leap to The Legend of Bagger Vance. And I think that to get really deep on this, James, I really feel like if we could look into the higher dimension, the dimension on which the gods and goddesses live, they were saying to me up to that point, we're not going to help you yet. You're not worthy yet. You haven't earned it yet. And then at that point with, with Bagger Vance, the goddess said, okay, I'm going to step in now. I'm going to help you. And uh, knock wood, it's been that way ever since. And that really is interesting because you really made a lot of sacrifice to make that novel in the sense that at your agent at the time, a guy named Frank was like literally begging you. He said, you're, he basically implied you were right at the tipping point of having a massive career in Hollywood. And you were arguing with him that you weren't going to have that. And he's like, no, 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 this is how it works. You've already succeeded. Now we just have to cash in. And I'm paraphrasing him. And, uh, uh, and you left that to go back to your first love, which was writing novels, even though he said, you're, you're finished, bud. Like you, you're, you're fired as my client. Well, yeah, that's exactly true. And from Frank, my agent's point of view, he was exactly right because he had put in like four or five years of work to get me going, you know, a lot of work, you know, schmoozing with people and et cetera, et cetera, putting my stuff before people. And now I was just flat out abandoning him, you know, to write a book, which he couldn't do anything with, you know? So he was right to, you know, fire me, get, be pissed off at me. But as I said, I was just so seized by this idea that I just had to do it. It was the call of the hero's journey. You know, you just had to do it. I don't think I would have done it. I think if I put my, when I was reading, I, <laughs> I put think you would have from what I know about you, James, I think but, you would have, but I don't know. Like it, it must've felt so good to get so much approval. Like this guy was saying, you know, Hollywood's ready for you, Steven, like the Oscars are next. And he said, he offered you so many alternatives. Like, can you do it on the side? Can you do it on weekends? <laughs> And I probably would have just bullshitted him and said, yeah, I'll do that. And tell me the next screenplay assignment. I, I don't know. I don't know what I would have done because, you know, you, you were looking so long for, for approval. And just when you finally get it, you said no to it. That really is the, the hero's journey. And you did it. I think that's a tough thing. I think nine out of 10 people or 99 out of 100 people would have said, heck, I'm in Hollywood. I'm going to write screenplays. I'm going to you know, hang out with, you know, on the red carpet and whatever. I think that was hard what you did, but that feeling of seizure 
of the story must have really that's why I noticed it was like a qualitative difference than things you felt before about stories. Yeah. It's a mystery. I wish I had a, some videos from that time and I could interview myself, but I know that there wasn't any real doubt. I just had to do it. And then, you know, on top of it, as you describe in the authentic swing, but I think many people noticed it before you wrote that you kind of mapped the legend of Bagger Vans onto the story of the Bhavaga Gita, which is the most popular story, let's say, in world history, like a billion people in India, you know, love every beat in that story. And I think it's a really good insight too, which again, you you talk about this in the authentic swing, so I won't dwell on it too much, but this good insight that, hey, lots of things have been written over the past 3000 years. Maybe five of them are texts that we still know about. So might as well follow the kind of structure or skeleton of something that's been followed by a billion people for the past 2,500 years we could do it too. And that's the legend of Bagger Vans, beat by beat, follows this classic story without anyone realizing it, and it works. But uh, I will say this in my own defense of that, that was I, not in any sense a cynical decision at all. Mm -hmm. It was just, I just thought, this classic structure of the Bhagavad Gita works absolutely for this other story. It's just a way of combining two things that have never been combined. But I am definitely a believer in stealing from the classics. If you can do Romeo and Juliet again, do it. You know, it works. There's a reason why certain things work. And it's also, that's a very different novel than novels that you wrote later. Like a lot of those were historical and there were fiction that is taking place. Beautiful stories are taking place during various wars. And that one just stands out as a, like, like an odd, like it's a classic. That one's definitely already withstood the test of time, and it will always be a great novel. Well, <laughs> thank you for that. But, uh, you know, this it, sort of in the novel that came after that, Gates of Fire, Yeah, that was about uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, but not the one that the movie 300 was made from. That was, I had another, the very similar feeling, James, where I thought this is another really dumb idea that nobody's going to be interested in. You know, uh, a story that from a place that nobody can pronounce, nobody can spell 2,500 years ago, not American. Who's going to care about this? And I'm going to put two years into this or more without any money behind it. But again, I was just absolutely seized by it and just had to do it. And it was a great experience doing it. I mean, I loved it all the way through. You know, the other thing about your career, which I don't feel like I did and I wonder if this was a time period thing where you were willing to take any job at all to keep writing every day. So you're a truck driver, you did crappy work for ad agencies, you know, <laughs> you, you, you just took all these, you know, you were picking apples. Was that in the quest for adventure and, and material? Or was it just like, I need to do mindless things so I can focus all my mental energy on my true dream? Actually, when I was doing a bunch of those jobs, like driving trucks and picking fruit and stuff like that, I was not writing at all. In fact, that was kind of a period where I had just given up in despair. And uh, I kind of carried my old typewriter with me in my 65 Chevy van, but I never got it out, never tried to write. I was really, at that point, I was just trying to survive, James. I was just trying to, so I was not looking for experience or adventure, even though I think all that stuff helped, but it wasn't until, you know, I finally did 
sit down and try to write again. This was after my first book completely collapsed. Um, I know this is kind of boring and confusing, no. but uh, um, but no, I was I was really running away from writing all that time. You know, it was really I was in the throes of capital R resistance to uh, to the call. You know, it was refusal of the call, big time. And during that period, do you think you were depressed? Uh, not really. I mean, I was like, it was sort of like down and out type of time. But so many of the things that I did were so challenging to me in a good way that I really was really involved in them and committed completely to them. Like learning to drive trucks was something I had never thought I would ever do. But I was just completely caught up in the the difficulty of it and trying to learn it. Do you think no matter what we do, even if we do something like driving trucks, we find ourselves in a hierarchy. So you're in this, you're driving trucks and just like with writing, you didn't feel like you were good at it. Like you had, there was, there was Byron and there was other people who were driving trucks better than you somehow. Like you put yourself in this hierarchy and you were honored to be in their midst at different points. I wonder if there's a way to avoid hierarchy in, in the activities <laughs> we do. Because that, that's like a source of being down and out, is that you feel down versus others. But the other side of it is, at least the way I felt, I felt like I was really blessed to be in this hierarchy, even though I was the youngest and the newest and the one that, and at the very bottom of the hierarchy. But it's like being in the military, too. If you're like a, a buck private or something like that, or a young lieutenant, you know, thank goodness you have, you know, captains and majors and so-and-so above you that you can, that will help you and be mentors to you. So these guys at the trucking company I was, I just really admired them. And, you know, when they would teach me things, I would just, uh, you know, soak it up with every cell of my body. So I think the hierarchy was a good thing there. I wonder if that's a kind of meta skill, which is you had already spent some time writing, but without mentors, then you get into the trucking business suddenly you're able to acknowledge what a mentor is, respect them and learn from them. I wonder if that is where you learned, oh, even if it was at a subconscious level, oh, I need a mentor. I need somebody who's going to guide me now in this writing thing. And again, it might have been a subconscious thing, but that was part of your maturing is that you had to switch careers into something you cared less about in order to respect having a mentor. And you know, that may be true. I never thought about that at all until you just said it right now. But I certainly had a bunch of mentors in that in that career, and uh, after after that, I did have mentors in in the writing career. So maybe there's something to that. It seems like in Hollywood, which is movies are an interesting thing because you can't have an extra scene; it'll distract the audience. They'll just get bored. So, like if you read Mario Puzo's The Godfather and then you watch the movie, there are enormous hundred page sections of that book that were cut out because they really would have been too much in the movie. And do you think in Hollywood is where you were, you know, you most learned the hero's journey, the arc of a story? Absolutely. In fact, I'm probably too Hollywoodized in the sense, you know, that the sort of principles of storytelling that I know are all movie principles, you know? And you're right. Like those subplots in Mario Puzo's The Godfather, you have to get rid of them for a movie because like you say, the audience will go to sleep, you know, if you do Sonny's adventures as a lover, right? You know, he's cheating on his, you know, that just doesn't have anything to do with the actual story. Because in a movie, 
you've only got like 90 minutes or 100 minutes and you have to keep the audience the audience is not allowed to go take a leak you know you can't go outside and smoke a cigarette if you do from the movie maker's point of view you've lost them right you got to keep them in the seat for that 90 minutes 100 minutes 110 minutes so there can't be any fat that's what i learned that's what i imbibed i'm probably still guilty of you know following those principles you know you don't mention it so much in this book but you mentioned in I believe it was the knowledge about your time working on stories for porn movies. I, since that was in the knowledge, I have to ask if that was fiction or not. But I think you've mentioned it in other places. I, I forget. But what do you think? Did you learn it even more in porn movies? Because they have to cut everything out as much <laughs> as they can, but still still keep enough of a story to justify it as a movie. But, you know, obviously there's a lot Actually, of cutting I out. I only wrote like one rewrite on a porn flick. But I learned like two great things. Can I, I you want me to be long winded and tell those two things here? Yes. So I remember the, the none of this producer, is long winded, by the way. The producer who was like a really nice family man, he took me out to breakfast and to uh, before I started on this rewrite because he wanted to make sure I didn't screw up this rewrite. And he said, Okay, here's two things I want you to do, kid. He said, uh, Let's see, what were they again? He said, uh, Anytime the couple are screwing, make sure that the plot advances. Don't just have it be talk, 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 screw, screw, screw. You know, if it's, a, let's say the, the male is a detective and the girl is a waitress or whatever it is, while they're in bed, have some nugget that advances the story. And I thought, wow, that is really an interesting thing. And uh, what I sort of applied it to was action movies and thinking that if there's a fight or a gunfight or a car chase, don't let the movie stop. There's got to be something that happens in that chase or in that fight. You know, the cop finds out that so-and-so was whatever, you know, to advance the story. And then the other thing that the porn producer said to me was, whenever there's a screwing scene, always have something else going on at the same time. Like, for instance, if it's the wife and the, and the pool repair guy and they're in the bedroom, have the husband coming home unexpectedly in the middle of the day and unbeknownst to his wife. And then he says we can cut back and forth to the, from the couple in bed to the husband coming home, and now you got something interesting going on. So I always thought that was another great thing, and Ridley Scott does this tremendously in movies, you know? He never has a scene where there's just one thing happening. Something's going on off screen or within the scene that's, you know, that's complementary or contradictory to the main thrust. And it was were two great lessons from one breakfast in Santa Monica with this guy. I'm I'm trying to think of an example. Like, could you, so really, Scott did Blade Runner. Can you give an example from Blade Runner? Um, let me see. Uh, I'm probably gonna blank on this, but. One thing Ridley Scott does visually is he'll always, he always will fill the screen. You know, if Thelma and Louise are in the foreground doing something, there's something else going on, you know, in great, in the depth in the background or something, but he'll always have some extra thing happening. Oh, that's interesting. Cause now that you say that I do, I, I, I do think of that. Like that's why there were, there's so many Easter eggs in Blade Runner where the detective, Sometimes he would leave these origami things 
in odd places. Oh, right. You wouldn't even notice Edward that. James Almost. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Edward James Almost. Yeah. 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 And then it makes me think of David Lynch also. Like in the very first Twin Peaks, it's all these students are sitting in a classroom and you only see way in the background outside a window of the classroom, someone is running past screaming and you never find out what that's about <laughs> or why, but it's just in the background. And I always thought, oh, it must be fun to do this job or thinking of these crazy things in the background. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan-favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This starts to get into craft where there's all sorts of things about craft. Like we discussed earlier, how you switch tenses occasionally. And, and again, you said that was instinctual, but that's learned over time. Chuck Palahniuk, Road Fight Club, he talks about this in his book about writing, Consider This, that it's interesting to play around with first person, second person, third person, all within the same. Yeah, he does that great. Yeah. You know, and then there's, there's other things too, which we touch upon, but it's like shortening sentences, no fluff. And this is something a lot of people don't do. Yeah. But another thing that I picked up on from reading his book, he talks about kind of, I think he calls it the big voice and the little voice. Oh, yeah. The little voice is sort of the voice that tells the story. But then, say it's a first-person narrator. The first-person narrator will shift gears, pull back, and start to talk about life in general. Hemingway does that a lot. He's talking about he's he's miserable, and the, the, his character, Jake Barnes and the Sun Also Rises, and then he'll pull back to that big voice and he'll say, yeah, it's one thing to say that you're tough at 12 in the afternoon, but it's another thing entirely to do it at two in the morning. And it's a yeah. great shift that I don't even know why it works, but it does work. Yeah. And you have to really be good to pull it off because there's that ego aspect, which is why yeah. does the character know this? Yeah. I think with The Sun Also Rises, which is his first novel, and like comparing that to Old Man in the Sea, for instance, essentially his last novel. In a movable feast, sometimes he makes judgments where you feel like it's Ernest Hemingway making the judgment and not the character, and that's where the ego is in there. Uh, which exactly. is why you know, that was a great novel, but it maybe wasn't his best. But then again, like in a movable feast, which I I loved, you sort of want to hear what Hemingway yeah. thinks, right? As, which is why that works as Hemingway as a memoir. himself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I got a question for you, James. Sure. A, a technique question. Did you see The Fablemans? No. Spielberg's movie? The Fablemans? I don't even think I heard it. Oh, it's uh, it's just came out now, and The Fablemans is sort of like his family. And it's kind of the story of a young kid in Arizona who wants to be a filmmaker, and 
It's very autobiographical. I can't ask you this question now because I'll ruin the final scene for everybody that's listening. You know, in this book, Government Cheese, you mention writers who write about their own aspiring quest to be writers. So you mentioned the novel Hunger by Newt Hansen. Um, Down and Out in London and Paris by George Orwell. Yeah, yeah. And then other writers in that category might be, are Bukowski, certainly, Post Office, which you mentioned. I mean, Post Office, he wants to be a writer, but he's not publishing, so he has to take this horrible job at the Post Office for 25 years or however long it was. <laughs> Henry and Miller. Henry Miller, yeah. And you you quote Henry Miller. And and you you ascribe to them a calling you felt you didn't have, but clearly you had it as well. Yeah, I, I did, but I didn't know it. You know, I was like so um uh so racked by self-doubt and way beyond self-doubt, you know, self-annihilation that I just thought, who are you to even think about trying to write something? You've got no education that prepared you for this, et cetera, et cetera. So I wish I could have had to be on fire with it like these guys were. But I thought, I have no business doing this at all, but I'm just trying to save my life, just try to write my way out of of being as depressed and as screwed up as I am. And clearly that was, since we know that was not correct information you were telling yourself, that was the resistance trying to prevent you from sitting down and writing. And for these other guys like Newt Hansen, he would literally go hungry as opposed to stop writing. And hence his novel, Hunger. You know, it's an interesting genre, the kind of writing, you know, writing a novel about wanting to be a writer. We, we, yeah. we see this from so many great, novelists i don't know what my question was with that but i think those are just great novels and you notice it as well you, you mentioned them but but again it, it struck me when reading this this book is your hunger yeah i mean i hoped it was that's really what it's about my own version of that yeah you know, newt Hampson turned out to be a pretty bad guy do you know anything about his no, uh i have only read hunger by him turned out to be a nazi among other things oh i didn't know that but the goes to show the book is fantastic you know, Hunger by Knut Thompson. But uh, yeah, he turned out to be kind of a bad guy. I guess it's also like Celine was sort of a writer like that as well. Different style, but, you know, Journey to the End of the Night, things like that. But he also turned out to be not such a great guy. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what it is. I guess, you know, artists, there's no guarantee that they're going to be, you know, they may write with the compassion and empathy, but a lot of times they don't live that way. But, you know, I wonder, I've, I've been kind of having this, theory lately, more out of annoyance at myself, but everybody's either, let's call it in this case, everybody's either a writer or a bird watcher. So to be a writer, or in some cases, an entrepreneur, in some cases, an athlete, uh, you know, something that requires some degree of self-awareness as well as peak performance and, and which requires years or sometimes decades to master. You could either be that, or it's perfectly fine being a bird watcher. Where you just have you have a little book. Oh, I saw uh, Hyacinth <laughs> Macaw today, and uh -huh. yeah, you go to places like Africa and you have binoculars, and <laughs> this is so beautiful. Like I feel like I wish I were a bird watcher, <laughs> and it consistently I just do stuff that is painful. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think that's a true dichotomy? What's your conclusion from that? That, I, that I'm probably mentally ill to some uh, <laughs> extent. And that's why these a lot of these writers and artists are just, a lot of them go in directions that turn out to be not so healthy. 
I'm not saying yeah. I'm going in that direction, but I'm saying it's such a hard thing and it's very unpleasant. Like you said, you were going to go to Hollywood and maybe blow your brains out if it didn't work. Like <laughs> bird watchers never say, if I don't see a hyacinth macaw, I'm going to blow my brains out. Like they never say that. <laughs> so what is it? Which is the better? Do you ever wish you were like, oh man, I wish I could have just been a partner at a law firm and, <laughs> and done that for 15 years and then retire and made 2 million a year on uh, being a partner and boom. No, I never wish that at all. But I do like the idea of bird watching. I mean, if you think of that in kind of a Zen sort of a way, you're just kind of, instead of doing, you're being, right? Yeah. You're just living life. You're appreciating the beauty of the world and, you know, smelling the flowers and that kind of thing. Sometimes I think, I wish I could be that kind of person, but I'm not. I'm driven, you know? Maybe it's from previous lives. I sort of feel like I've fallen behind somehow and I've got to catch up, you know? Yeah. Or that, uh, you know, I've I've got stuff I have to do, even though I don't know what it is. And if I don't do it, I'm going to be miserable. Right. And it's painful because to your point, when you had this self-doubt and you said, who am I to, essentially, I'll, I'll finish the thought, like, who am I to write a book that even one other person is going to want to read? Like, I have, you, have, you have to have like a huge ego to think anyone gives a shit about what you want to say, you know, and that means you're going to put yourself through a lot of pain because when you start out, you're not that person. You And you have to withstand that period where you become that person. And it, it, it's very painful as opposed to the bird watcher. And, and maybe I'm wrong about bird watching. So bird watchers, listeners who are bird watchers <laughs> can tell me, look, I went through a lot of hell before <laughs> I, I became a great bird watcher. But clearly that, you know, making a sword by fire I don't know. It's just a hard way to live, and I can't. But I can't seem to live any other way, and is the problem. Yeah, that's that's it for me too. I can't live any other way either. You know, and we've talked about this before—the kind of sacrifice, even personally. Although, you know, you're—I would say you're—you're you're looking at you. It seems to me that you have the elements of well-being and contentment with your life, and probably some, you know, happiness. But like, even now at your age, like, how old are you right now? Seventy-nine. Seventy-nine. Oh my gosh. I was going to say 72, but, uh, and I was being honest. I got like, my wife asked me earlier, how old is he? And I think I said, I think he's like 71, 72, um, 79. So in a year you're 80, which quite frankly is old, right? Yes. But you're still, I would say the one transition you've had in, let's say since middle age is that you have begun writing these mentorship style books, like the war of art and Nobody wants to read your shit and that's the authentic true. That's swing. You know, turning pro. So and and you've mastered that that art form as well. Like that's a really great art form where you've inspired many people. And that seems like a natural shift to keep as opposed to always wanting to write an Oscar-winning movie or like the best novel in the world. It seems like, you know, moving into some type of mentorship seems like a natural progression. That's true. Although I haven't stopped, you know, I mean, this was one, a man at arms yeah. from a year ago and, and government cheese is another one, you know? So I, I sort of, I feel like these mentorship type of things I'm doing on the side. Yeah. That's not my real profession, but you're right. It is at a certain age. I think you do kind of evolve out of, you know, even Rocky stopped fighting in the ring and began training other boxers, you know? Right. But is there ever a point now where you're disappointed, like, oh, this novel didn't do this, or 
oh, I didn't, I don't have this many followers after doing this. Like, is there ever a point where you have that kind of youthful disappointment in some kind of like, you know, career like thing? I mean, I think, I think you're always disappointed, right? I mean, everybody, you finish something and it's never as good as you hoped it was. You wish it had found a bigger audience or whatever. But for me, the conclusion I've kind of come to is, as far as my writing is it's a practice that I'm going to do like a yoga practice or a martial arts practice or whatever, you know, for its own sake, you know, until they take me out feet first, you know, I'm going to keep trying to, to do a, the next best thing that the next best idea that the goddess gives me, just try to do it as well as I can. So let's go 10,000 feet higher from that statement, which is what is it about doing the process that you think delivers meaning not only to you, but perhaps the people around you, perhaps the community around you, perhaps to the world around you? I'm a believer in another dimension of reality, right? In a higher dimension of reality. And on that dimension, there is the source of all ideas, whatever you want to call it, you know, um, the muse or source with a capital S or whatever. And I feel like that energy flows through some of us, maybe all of us, but certainly through me, and I'm sure through you too, James, constantly. And it demands that we enact it. It's our job as material beings to bring into existence ideas and stories or whatever. If we were musicians, it would be songs. If we were choreographers, it would be dances. It's our job to bring that into this world. And that flow, that kind of underground river, never stops. And it seems to me that if you ignore that, I'm just speaking for myself, and but probably for you too. If yeah, we ignore that, we're going to get sick and we're going to get crazy and we're going to go down a very bad rabbit hole. And so we don't even have a choice. We've 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 got to respond to that river that's flowing through us. And um, thank God it is. So that's how I live my life. And age doesn't mean a fucking thing to me. You know, as long as I can still punch a key on a keyboard, then I'm okay. Thank goodness I'm not a professional athlete because I'd have a tough time doing that. But, you know, as long as you got your sanity and you got a keyboard, you can keep working. Well, I think for writers also, the one type of intelligence that increases after the age of 50 is the ability to extrapolate from experience and find wisdom from experience. So that helps, as opposed to an athlete, that helps professions like writing or historian, those types of professions. Yeah. But also, I think, each one that you do, each book that you do, this is just my feeling. I feel like an innocent. I feel like a virgin. It's always a new challenge. The solution is always something you've never done before. And it's a, as you enter on each project, it's always a mystery. And like Seth Godin says, you know, this might work, this might not work. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you never know. And usually you're wrong when you think you do know. Like right now, there's other forms of media that are amazing, right? I'm not saying amazing versus anything else, but they're just new forms. Like, like, I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever scrolled down like TikTok videos? No, I haven't. Okay. If you just try it once, there are like kids on there, and by kids, maybe anywhere from the ages of 15 to 30, whatever, 
there are kids on there that are like have superpowers. They're jumping from building to building. They're doing uh -huh. magic tricks. They're dancing these dances. They they're hilarious doing these funny interviews. Like it's a real great source of entertainment by people who are good performers. And do you ever view that? I don't know what the statistics are on like more people reading novels than ever. I always seem to hear that in the background, but somebody must be leaving reading to watch TikTok videos. <laughs> yeah. So are you asking me if I'm going to become a TikTok person? <laughs> no, but do you worry that that's competition for, for writers uh, and generations well, it to is. come? It is for sure. But I also think uh, I'm open going forward to doing any media whatsoever. It's all all fascinating stuff, you know? except I'm not going to buy Donald Trump's superhero NFTs. I, I wouldn't do that either. So probably <laughs> worthless, but like, but you, but you bring up an interesting point because I sometimes think writers are performers. They're, they're sort of like performers in hiding because writing a story is a form of performance. It's just, you're not there physically performing. For sure. Absolutely. Yes. Now, do you feel though, there are less readers now than there were 20 years ago? It's a great question because, you know, I keep reading like you. I read like, oh, the book business is bigger than ever. But yet when I look around at my friends, I see nobody's reading a damn thing, you know? Um, and when you mention anything, uh, you know, any title or something like that, people look at you like, what's that? Never heard of it. So I'm not, people are reading, but I'm not sure who they are. Yeah, people are reading. And I think, I think, you know, they always say women are reading. I don't yeah, know if that's, I hear that too. Yeah, but clearly there must be some men reading, right? Who's who's yeah, reading? Men re I know because they write to me. Yeah, but yeah, I don't really know that many. I don't really go on. Let's say I go on a train. I don't really see people reading a book. They're usually like watching videos, and I wonder if that what that suggests long term for the art of not the art of storytelling, but storytelling in text. If that's going to change, like in Japan, for instance, novels have become smaller. Like they're not necessarily 300 pages, you know, uh, and that's yeah, been a trend yeah, over the past 30 kid, years. Yeah. On the other hand, there's a bunch of little kids in my family and, uh, you know, my nieces and nephews, kids, and they're all avid readers, eight years old, 10 years old, something like that. You, you know, you put a book in their hands and they just love it. So that's good to know. You know they might not be reading Hemingway. They're reading some little simpler stuff, but so somebody is out there reading. What, what's the, what's the book you would recommend? to people who want to read that will inspire their writing? Um, you know, just what, uh, this has just popped into my head, I'm, is um, The Movie Goer by Walker Percy. Are uh, you yeah. familiar with that one, James? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's the one also, I think Ryan Holiday recommends that one a lot as well. Oh, does he? Uh, just as a great, sly, funny, interesting, it won the National Book Award, I think, in 1962. So it's it's not a contemporary book at all. It's a book I love. I read it like once a year. Oh, really? You know, it's funny. I think there are there are a couple of go-to books that I read once a year because I think it fuels my writing. Like I think to myself, like particularly whenever I'm a little bit down on my own writing, I'll read one of these and it'll just it'll get my juices going. Like, oh, this is magic. This is what it's about. Ah, what are what are those books? Like there's a book of short stories called Jesus Son by Dennis Johnson about this drug addict there all the stories are interwoven about this one drug addict the character's name is fuckhead you never really learn his real name <laughs> and it's a beautiful set of short stories 
it's sort of like um, the things they carried by Tim O'Brien. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a great one. Too. Yeah, you know Raymond Carver short stories. Ah, I mean, I love novels, but short stories are sort of that that halfway point between poetry and novels, where I think a lot of great writing happens, and so that yeah. gets my juices going. I'm actually more of a movie person in terms of, you know, finding inspiration. You know, you see a a great movie or even a, for me, even a half-assed movie that just sort of works. And that's inspiring to me. You know, I, when the, when the final credits roll, I go, ah, oh, man, I want to get back to work, you know, and whatever I was doing on, I got to work harder on it. Yeah. Movies for me, television for me, actually. Cause I, I think television I think, too. Yeah. I think a lot of the best writing now is in television, just because you get this much greater arc. Uh, you have time to unravel your story. Like, and I've always loved television. I, my, when I had my three or four failed novels that were awful and after years and years of work, my first job after that was not truck driving, but HBO because I loved television so much. Ah. I, I did whatever I could to work at HBO. So I was a computer programmer there. I just love television. Yeah, there certainly is a lot of great stuff. Although now there, I think it's almost like the great wave has passed, in my opinion. You know, the great wave of Breaking Bad and the Sopranos and Game of Thrones, and now we're in kind of the backwash of, like, I watched whatever, what is it, the, the House of the Dragon? Did you see that? No, I haven't, because I agree with you. I think the golden age was from about 2004 to about 2015. Yeah, I think you're right. It's kind of gone, the wire and things like that. You know, now it's, I don't know what it is. It's the bastard children, you know, of those, of those uh, great works. Yeah, and so even if there are, is something good, it's harder to find. It's like a needle in a haystack. Yeah, but, but, let, but this maybe it's all to, on TikTok, like you're saying. Yeah, it could be that the best writers are doing TikTok videos yeah. now. But let me ask you, like, with all these streaming services and seven thousand shows, like when we were growing up, there were three channels. Now there's a billion. And why? Why is it? And every TV show has a writers' room with ten writers. So why is it still competitive for many people to get a job at writing? when there's like a hundred thousand new writing jobs. I don't know. There. That's a great question. There must be a lot of people trying to do it. You know, I, I, I see all the stuff that's on TV and I say, Hey, but how come nobody's making my stuff? You know, mine's yeah. better than that shit, you know? But so I don't know. There must be a lot of, uh, a lot of people out there looking for work. Yeah. And a lot of bad stuff gets, gets produced too. Like I think about my own stuff. I probably pitched like a dozen TV shows that I felt really seriously about and nothing got made and huh, i guess it's i'm surprised to hear that i would think your stuff would be like right up people's street i had literally spielberg asking me for ideas but then they wanted to find a writer to do them and they couldn't find a writer to do them so uh -huh. and i'm like i'll do them and they're like no you're not a, you know, a television writer <laughs> but you know steve pressfield you know you, you whether you know or not you've been a serious mentor to me even before we had our first podcast which our first podcast was in person and in, in malibu at your house and i really appreciate just all the things you write and and all the conversations we have and i feel bad sometimes i'm so bad at like responding to emails sometimes i don't always respond quickly to, to emails but i always i always appreciate our, our discussions and, and learn so much well i so. feel the same way james you don't know what it but you're a mentor to me too no and i really admire the way your mind works and the stuff the choices you've made in your life you know, the crazy things that you've done and you've gone out on a limb so many times, you know, God bless you. You're an inspiration to me. Oh, I, I appreciate you saying that. I'm going to, I'm going to frame this clip of the podcast. <laughs> uh, 
But this book, Government Cheese, is a must read. It's about that struggle. It's about, you know, this is what we everybody was curious about when you were writing The War of Art and other books like that. You were giving us little bits and pieces like, oh, one time I worked with on this movie and blah, blah, blah. But now we get the story in this book and it's a, you know, it's it's a cliffhanger book. And by the way, this leads, I, I do have another question. This leads to the craft. Like I noticed, you know, you begin and end many chapters with a cliffhanger. You even begin with a cliffhanger. So there was one chapter I wrote down the, the quote, the first year at the orchard, we came upon a dead body. So that was the first line of one of the chapters, which of course is a cliffhanger in the first sentence. And I'm just, this is a more technical question, but how often, particularly in a, a, this world we live in, which is short-term attention, how often do we need a cliffhanger? Is it every paragraph? Is it every chapter? Is it every sentence? Uh, I think you need quite a few of them. You know, I think, again, it's sort of the concept of nobody wants to read your shit, right? So you can't just write nothing. The start of a chapter or the start of anything has got to hook you a little bit somehow. And I do always try to kind of leave leave it on a cliffhanger a little bit, you know, leave something that makes the reader want to turn the page to the next chapter. I'm always trying to do that. Every chapter, are you thinking of the arc of the hero? So not only does the book itself have to have the, the hero's journey, the, you know, the arc of a story, does every chapter, does every paragraph? Like, I think, think it about does. That? I think it does. Yeah. There has to be momentum because it's all, it's nobody wants to read your shit, right? It's yeah. like at every moment, I, I picture the reader as getting bored, getting tired. I got a lot of other distractions. I got to write, you know, I got to go to the grocery store. So somehow I've got to keep the reader's attention. And I'm constantly trying to do that. Well, I, you know, so I asked those questions after what seemed like the conclusion. But <laughs> for listeners out there, wait until you see what I do next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks again, Stephen. I, I super appreciate you coming on the podcast. And Government Cheese, for everyone out there, we didn't even talk about the origin of the title, but you'll get it when you read, you'll figure it out when you read the book. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks, James. I, I'm come on anytime. You know, it's great to hang out with you. You're you're a wonderful guy. I love you, man. Thanks a lot. Stay here. Thank you so I, much, Stephen. Ready to I'll come on anytime. Excellent. I'm gonna take you up on that. Okay. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.